Here at Making Movies is Hard, we want to express our support for the WGA strike as well as the SAG-AFTRA strike. We encourage our filmmaker comrades to look into how best they can be allies for the good fight. Please go to WGACONTRACT2023.org to support the cause. Also, please check out SAGAFTRA.org for additional resources. Making movies is hard, but casting for your movie doesn't have to be. With Casting Calls America, you can post your open roles for free in over 30 local markets nationwide. And when you post your roles, they will automatically post to IMDb Pro to get even more eyes on your project. All actor submissions are delivered to your user-friendly dashboard, making your casting process easy. You can even search our actor databases and invite actors you're interested in to audition to your project. Actors pay a small monthly fee and have all open roles delivered to their inbox each day. Get your project started today. It's casting made easy at castingcallsamerica.com. You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome. This is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Bissell, the founding host of the podcast. I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker, and my first feature film, The Alternate, is out now on digital, Tubi, and DVD. I'm Liz Manischel. I'm a writer, director, producer who has made two features, Bread and Butter and Speed of Life. And I'm currently really trying to make another one called Best Friends Forever. It's a horror comedy. I'm a distribution consultant who does sales, and I used to manage Sundance's creative distribution initiative. This week, we welcome producer Mel Miller on the show to talk about her time in distribution, moving from Gravitas to Samuel Goldwyn as the executive VP, and then stepping away from that role to focus on her own films, which led her to winning an Oscar for Navalny earlier this year, which is super exciting. After that, we play another round of The Game. But first, Ulrich, how are you? I'm okay. I'm good. I mean, I have a baby coming any moment now, which is exciting. And I'm just like sort of still reeling from the whole strike thing that happened last week. You know, I I, I was like <laughs> texting you and Eric, like, did it happen yet? Is it happening? When does it happen? And I was like on a two hour call when it happened officially. And then like, you were like, what about, did you watch the video? And so I watched the speech and like, it literally brought tears to my eyes. It was so it was passionate. so good. Yes. Yeah, she did a fantastic job. So yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm feeling... Very curious and very interested in what's going to happen with this thing. I've been hearing like different rumors from people I've been talking about. Like I have a, a this the show that I cannot name that I've been working on with the director I will not name. They're, they have management at CAA, who I will not name besides CAA. And yeah, the word from them was like, this will be going on for a long time. <laughs> like, oh God. <laughs> Like how how could they it just seems insane. It seems so insane to me that they'd be willing to drag this on for multiple months because like how much money are they gonna lose? Like they're gonna lose so much money. All the, the, the fees they have to pay, all the over the like the, the kill fees, all the overages this is incur for their films. It just seems nutty to me as a producer. It just seems like a crazy oh, thing to do. I don't even think about that. I just think about how much content they have at their fingertips that they could distribute at any point. I don't think about all the kill fees. So I'm like, why wouldn't they do this? They have an abundance of things that they could broadcast at any moment. And, and they can't just like leave sets like sitting there. Like they're, they're, they're paying for studio space. They're paying for that's true. rental true. fees, all this stuff. They're just going to leave it there for months and months. Are they going to pay them to back it up and then pay everybody again to put it back up again? 
Like, it just seems fucking crazy. To it's me. like a toddler, like, digging their heels in, being like, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> like, we don't care how much it costs. Right. We're already lost leaders. We'll lost lead some more. Blah. <laughs> But I don't know, what, what, what have you been hearing and like, what is your sense of this whole thing? I'm just really inspired. Like, I I don't, I feel like the strike will go on as long as it needs to. I don't want it to last long. But, and I know this is like a really twisted way of looking at it, but I, I'm thrilled that other people see the industry is broken as like we've all been talking about for years. Like it just makes me feel like we're having this moment. We're all seeing it the same way. And I'm really excited by that. I don't want anyone to suffer. I don't want anyone to lose money. I want them all to lead sustainable lives, but I'm just excited about the moment of awakening. So I'm enjoying that and I'm picketing Later this week, probably I picketed at Universal for the WGA, and now I'm going with the same SAG actors who came with me to the WGA picket. We're all going to do SAG picketing, and I'm going oh, in fine. solidarity of them. So I'm going to Disney with them later this week, which I'm very, very excited about because I just think that there's it's like, in, I don't know. Did you do I was I liked politics in college and then I stepped away. But I was in Amnesty International. I was in Students for Sensible Drug Policy. I was in all these groups and I protested and I picketed and I did all these things. And it makes me feel connected to do this again about something that I really care about. So Mm. I'm thrilled. But yes, I want things to get better. I do. Of course. It just seems like it's inevitable. Like it's get, there's going to have to be some improved. Like you know, this whole idea that like I let this dirty article or dirty words that came out last week about like oh we're going to break the WGA and you know people are going to lose their homes or whatever all this stuff and then like you re- you go on Twitter and you're like yeah we've been broke broke being broke is like our second part of our job like we can be broke don't worry about us we'll be fine you know and I don't think the studios are under- really understanding like how willing people are to fight for this for an extended period to the point where like, they're going to look up and they're going to be like, wow, we just burned three, four months of production because we're like, don't want to release like, you know, whatever, give people what they, what, what like something that we don't want to give up, you know, basically it's like, they don't want to give up power. They don't want to give up money. It's like, well, maybe you have to now, <laughs> like maybe you've had like this exemption for your whole existence, but maybe you should have thought about how like that was not going to be forever. Like you can't forever have your numbers private. No one has their numbers private except you fuckers. Like that's like, you know, how, how did you think that was going to end? They didn't think it was going to end. And that's because no. their, their no. heads are up their butts, you know? No, and that's why indie filmmakers need to rise up right now. But the issue is, I mean, this I I feel like we're going to talk about this a lot, but this whole Mark Ruffalo tweet. Did you see the Mark Ruffalo tweet? No, I didn't see this one. Where he's like, come on, actors, it's time for us to join indie productions now and and build a new system. And it's like, sure, Mark, that sounds lovely. Who's going to fund those films? (laughs) Like, it's just like, (laughs) like, it's not as if us indie filmmakers were just waiting the wings with full budgets saying, please, please come to us. We're ready to go. It's like, no, no, we need you to attach ourselves attach yourselves to our project so we could get the financing and then go. But it's just this funny thing where I think that there's an idealism about building a new system 
that hopefully will be confronted and come to like some sort of, I don't know, come to some sort of head because I don't think the actors past a certain point understand how indie productions are even made and and dependent on them, like fully dependent on cast. We're not just like waiting in the wings like we need we need them to step up in ways more than just like receive the offers. It's like, no, help curate content, help finance films, like help support truly independent voices. Yeah. Uh, Agreed. yeah, on that note, don't forget to support us on Patreon, www.patreon.com slash MMIH podcast, which is the way that we get to keep the show going. We're recording this just so everyone knows, because I think it's good to keep track on July 18th. I don't know when it's going to air, probably in a couple weeks, right? Maybe a week or two. Two, two weeks. Two weeks from now. And then Auric Arc might be have a like a new soul in his life, like toddling about, or I don't know what babies do. I should know. It's been you're gonna years. find out soon. <laughs> you'll, be, um, you'll, you'll be him crying nice, a lot. Yeah, exactly, crying so a lot. Yeah, we'll be taking a little bit of a sabbatical from recording these episodes, but the Patreon is how the show keeps going, so that we can take a step away and live our lives, and then come back to keep on producing content. Also, don't forget to check out Jambox.io, with it, which is a royalty free music. Music and SFX company with an emphasis on high quality cinematic cues. Their composers have worked on soundtracks for Hollywood level films, working with directors like Michael Bay, Martin Scorsese, global brands like DJI. They offer customized plans to fit your needs, which is pretty awesome. And without any more gibbly gobble, here's our chat with Mel Miller. Mel Miller, welcome to the show. Can you give us the elevator pitch for your film, Maestra? Sure. It's funny. And I normally don't answer these questions a lot of times. I just <laughs> kick them over to Maggie, who's the director of the film. Um, he's, she's also one of the producers. But Maestra is a film that ha- it's a bit of a Trojan horse, in my opinion, but that is not the logline. It is focused on a female conducting competition called La Maestra, but the film itself really focuses in on five of the 14 competitors and really the trials and tribulations of what it's like to be a woman in this particular sphere and how limiting it has been and why this competition exists. But it really dives more into just how women are starting to take more space and need the representation and need the ability to be seen. And we want to show how they communicate with each other and how they really build community amongst themselves during the process of the competition. So even though it's a competition film, that is not the core value that is represented in the film overall. Mm-hmm. We know this is a, a documentary, so you might not have a, a really specific number here, but about how many days did you shoot? Oh, it it I would say off and on with different characters. Each character probably had four to 10 days total with Maggie, the director. And then the competition Mm -hmm. is only for a short period of time for like less. They were there for, I think, approximately a week between before, during and after. So in in the grand scheme of things, not as much as you would think in terms of a documentary that goes on for years and years and years. And if you can say, what was the rough budget of the film? And if you can't say, just give us a range if you can of any kind. Unfortunately, right now, because the film is being sold by UTA, I'm not I'm not actually at liberty to give you even a range right now because the the marketplace is so incredibly volatile right now that we want to make sure that we're trying Mm. to get the best possible 
price for the film as well as the right home. Sure, sure, we understand that. How how did you come across this project? How did this? You have a a, a fairly strong musical background. You've worked in in music licensing and also producing for for quite a number of years. But how did you find this project? So Maggie, the director, was actually introduced to myself and my producing partner, Diane Becker. At We have a company called Fishbowl Films. And John Bernstein, who's a gentleman that we've known for some time, Diane and John go way back. And I've known John through many, many years of attending Sundance and being at screenings and different times together. And he's the one who introduced us to Maggie, or at least informed us of her project. And we started talking with her a few years ago about the film. And at the time, we honestly did not have the capacity to take it on in the way that we would normally do. And so we came on as consultants for a period of time, but I wound up really kind of putting in more time and more energy into the project than originally I thought I would have the time for because of everything that we had going on with Navalny. And so over the course of the time that we were working on the project together, Maggie and then her producing partner, Neil, who she normally would be his producer, and he was the one who encouraged her to direct this project. They asked if I would come on as a full producer, which I said yes to, because I just, I love this project so much. And then how long did you spend working on the film from like that initial agreement to like be a part of it to now when it's being ready to be released? Well, it's, I would say, and this is where this is where COVID has definitely affected my brain <laughs> to some capacity in terms of time. <laughs> Genuinely, I, I would say that I've been working with them for well over a year and a half in terms of the project. And now that it just had its world premiere at Tribeca uh, about two weeks ago, it's just starting its festival journey and its sales journey as well. So it's hard to say when the film will actually be released, but I will be out there attending as many events as possible and helping to shout from the rooftops that people should see this film. So I probably have, in all honesty, at least another year of you know participation from just an awareness point of view of getting the film out into the marketplace and all the PR and marketing and everything that goes behind that. Mm. Now you have the you have the luxury of being able to see the whole project in, in hindsight. If you could go back and change anything in any way, would you? Or did, are you completely happy with how everything turned out? Maggie did a phenomenal job. I really do. And I think mm. she's truly a collaborator. You know, I am the type of producer who I will keep my mouth shut until I see the first rough cut. And it's just kind of the way I like to operate. And then once I actually have the time to to really, and I, I like to watch something first through without taking any notes. And then I'll rewatch again. And that's where I start to take my copious notes. And, you know, I had going from rough cut to fine cut. There are a lot of different iterations of a project. But Maggie was really, really embracing of notes from all various parties on the project. But, uh, you know, it's it's one of those things where would I change anything right now? I I don't think so. I you know, it's like I it's very fresh in my mind because we just screened at Tribeca as well as down in D.C. I was able to attend both of those festivals and if anything, it's funny. It's like the film's pacing is like super fast. And I'm like, oh, my God, we didn't miss anything. And yet we achieved a film where people are truly enjoying it and really getting a lot of information and getting to know their characters and including credits. I think it's approximately 88 minutes. It's so it, it just flies by. So mm -hmm. to answer, your, it's a long winded answer. But I think if if there was the ability for it to be a two parter or a series, maybe then it would be great to dive into more of the characters and spend more time with them. But 
but it was also because of COVID and during filming, there were certain times where Maggie couldn't even spend time with the characters. So I think for the time frame of when the film was made, budgetary constraints, COVID restraints from various countries, I think we got an amazing amount of footage. And she did a really great job with Red Wolf Films, which is the editorial company. There's a group of editors who worked on the project and they did a great job because this film is not easy to cut because of the music. Oh, I'm so sorry. Where's my dog? <laughs> <laughs> That's perfectly fine. We have dogs and children that. running around this podcast all the time. Usually yeah, screaming. Think, yeah, I think yeah. she is hearing somebody on our front porch right now. So I apologize. Oh, uh, no worries. So I kind of want to go way back. I want to hear about, you know, how you first got started in music clearances in the first place. Because, you know, I've done a little clearance work in my time as a producer, but I think it's a very interesting role to have. So I kind of want to hear that story and then, you know, kind of leading into how that got you started as a producer. Okay. So when I first started working in, in the film industry as a whole, I worked for a production company called Neo Motion Pictures. And that was basically my film school. And one of the things that I was really intrigued by and interested in was the fact that there were our, our edit, we had various edit bays. So we had various films going on at the same time. And a lot of times the editors were like, oh, I really wish we had access to this song or how could we get this? And so I just remember I would, and I was a sponge because I was, I was like, let me try to help you as much as I possibly can. And so I started reaching out to different music libraries because we had, we had significant budget constraints and music libraries and trying to understand how we could get the master and the sync license and really started to teach myself a little bit about how that worked. And then I asked the president of the company if they would pay for me to attend a LA extension course at UCLA that Bonnie Greenberg taught about music supervision. And that class went into everything from the creative process with working with your director, your editor, and your team, as well as understanding the clearance process. And full circle moment, <laughs> this is like kind of fun, is within the last six months, I was attending an event and I heard a woman speaking right behind me. And I was like, oh my God, that voice sounds so familiar to me. And I turned around and I heard her say, it was so nice to meet you. Like, here's my information again. And she said, Bonnie. And I, I was like, "Are by chance, are you Bonnie Greenberg? And she was like, yes, I am. And I was like, oh my God. And I just kind of did the like bow down. Kind of, <laughs> and, and she was like, oh my God, who are you? And I was like, my name's Mel Miller. And I took your class <laughs> back in the 90s. I really wanted to be a music supervisor and I learned everything that I needed to implement as I was actually like working on my first project as a music supervisor from you. And she was like, wait, are you serious? And I was like, yes. And then she's like, <laughs> I'm here because you're one of the producers for Navalny. And I was like, yes, my career has definitely done some zigzagging along the way. <laughs> and, she was, and so like, we've now become like friends and we're actually getting together for, for lunch for the first time, just to kind of talk about like how that has influenced different choices that we've made along the way. So yeah, that's, I give a lot of credit of how I understood how to do it to Bonnie Greenberg. Wow. Oh, that's, that's such a sweet story. Well, to, staying kind of back in the, back in the past a little bit, you have such a robust music background and also with documentaries, like, were you in bands when you were a kid? Were you just a music lover? Were, did you grow up, like, you know, playing musical instruments? And, and, and also, how was it that you got into documentaries? Like, you know, what, what, was, what were the driving forces between those kind of those choices in your life? I have 
absolutely no musical talent whatsoever. (laughs) (laughs) I I might have musicality. You know, I can keep a beat. I would say I enjoy to dance. I've had friends tell me like, oh, look out, Mel's getting on the dance floor. Like I, I enjoy music very much. My, I would say a big influence of why I've enjoyed music from a very young age is my aunt, who I'm very close with. She's only about 15 years older than me. She used to be a rock and roll photographer. So I was around musicians quite a bit growing up. And then my uncle, her her husband, unfortunately, who passed away a few years ago, was a professional musician. He was a trumpet player. He played with Jack Mack and the Heart Attack. He did uh, studio work, all kinds of things. Like at one point, Jack Mack and the Heart Attack was the uh, house band for the Arsenio Hall show. So, you know, I was getting snuck into clubs at 16 years old with them and just so I could see them play, you know, and so I've been this height since then. So it was pretty easy to throw a hat (laughs) on me and like sneak me in. But I really spent a lot of time as a child and and a teen around it. And so it wasn't really a surprise that I wound up somehow involved in the music industry. And it kind of parlayed into film because I wound up working at this production company when I was 20 years old. And so I kind of put both of those worlds together. But in terms of like playing an instrument or anything, I, you know, I think I might have been in like maybe third or fourth grade and I attempted the flute and I was horrible. (laughs) So that's about it. I've never, you know, I can't play the piano or I can read a little bit of music. Like I can read a little bit of music, but that's it. But I do think that I have an ear for it. And that was the really helpful part for the music supervision, the creative side of it, where you were working with your directors Mm -hmm. and really them kind of expressing what they needed or wanted and then determining, do we have the money to license something like that? Or do we need to bring on a composer And there's a couple of films where the director didn't necessarily have the music language to be able to speak with the composer. And I would wind up kind of being that bridge between the two to help. And so I I, lo- I still very much get involved in those conversations on projects now that I produce. But I think the reason that I really kind of moved more into producing overall versus just staying within the music portion of the film is because I love every aspect of it. And my boss, who actually gave me my first job, so funny, I just saw him for the first time in a while. And he was like, do you remember when I gave you that book the kid stays in the picture and I was like yeah I still have it and he was like and he's like he's like do you remember what I wrote in it and I was like yeah I totally remember. He, and he, inside he inscribed and he was like to the toughest chick I know I'm gonna work with one day and then <laughs> actually scratched it out and said work for and it was <laughs> nice. it was one of those things where he always knew I would wind up being a producer because I enjoyed so much of every aspect of it and was such a sponge and again like I said at the very beginning like this company was film school for me and I've actually most of my my most significant friends and friends that I would call family, we all kind of grew up within this company together. So I want to hear a little bit about like kind of that that transition time from, you know, working at this company and like being a music supervisor, like working in, in mu- focusing on the music and films to like actually taking over and like leading a production and being the producer on, you know, a video or a documentary or anything like so what was that? switch like and how did it happen was it just because like you got an opportunity with your company did you strike out on your own like how did you make that switch happen 
So the first time I got a producer credit was an associate producer credit when I was still working at Neo. And one of my best friends was also someone who worked within the company. Her name's Raquel Cabalas. And the producers who ran the company turned to us and said, we're going to give you $127,000. You guys are going to go to Seattle and you're going to produce this narrative film that Christine has wants to direct. And her friend, Bill Cody, wrote the script. Her name's Christine Peterson. And we were like, okay. And Raquel looked at me and she's like, you're, co- you're coming with, she's like, you're coming with me. We're going to figure this out. And I was like, so we drove up, we lived on UW campus in, a, in, a, in an apartment with her, her husband, myself, our DP and our first AC. And we made this film for obviously pennies back in the early nineties. And that film actually got into Sundance. We premiered at Sundance in 1997. It's called Slaves to the Underground. So that was my first producing experience as an associate producer. I also helped do a lot of the music clearance work on that. And so it was a very all immersive product. And once that happened, I was like, why am I not doing this all the time? But obviously, life requires you to make money. And sometimes, you know, getting a project off the ground take time. And so I definitely took various jobs along the way. I did a lot of production supervision, production management, worked on big shows. Music clearance kind of led to actual visual clearances. I did a lot of big studio films and doing visual clearances because it's kind of the same process in terms of like understanding how to clear. And you work a lot with like the product placement teams back then as well as like, are we getting this through product placement or are we going to have to clear this? Like a really good example was I worked on Brett Ratner's film Family Man with Nicolas Cage. And there's a scene, Nick Nick Cage has a NYU t-shirt on. And I'm like, you know, like very young still. And I was like, we got the dailies and I was like, And I had been on set and I was like, he's not allowed to wear the T-shirt because we don't have permission from NYU yet. (laughs) And Brett was like, we're going to shoot it with NYU's T-shirt. I I went to NYU. Don't bring it up again. I'm shooting with it. And I was like, okay. I'm like, okay, but you have to understand if we don't get permission, we're going to have to either reshoot the scene or we're going to have to talk to the visual effects department and either completely gray it out or blur it out. And I'm like, you don't want to do that. This is a huge studio film. Needless to say, we wound up figuring out the clearances of it, but because it was already in the film, we probably spent more on the licensing than we should have because it wasn't already cleared. So I was like, I understood that dialogue of like how to talk to your director and how But I was also like, this isn't enough. Like I was just like, I was missing out on like the big picture of all of it. And so I really tried to start moving into producing as much as I possibly could. But again, you know, life requires you to pay your bills and stuff. So I, I've done multiple things along the way. I ran a film festival. It was my first year at a film festival. I was actually a volunteer at the Jackson Hole Film Festival. A friend of mine who was actually a composer, his name's Evan Doros. He started a festival in Jackson Hole and he was like, you know, you're one of the few people I trust in this industry. Would you be willing to help us? And I volunteered for the first year. And then that just gradually expanded. My role became as full-time as you could possibly imagine for a seasonal festival. But by the time the the last year of the festival took place was 2008, I was the artistic director of the entire thing. So helping to oversee programming and, and year-long programming and all different types of things. But we shut that festival down because of the, pan- not the pandemic, but the downturn of the economy. And we just realized mm. if we're going to shut down, this is probably the year to do it for financial reasons. It was also, we kind of went out with a bang because our keynote speaker that year was Ban Ki-moon. And so we kind of felt like we had achieved 
a lot of what we were trying to do with the festival in terms of awareness because it was it was it wasn't just a film festival it was a way to bring people together to really try to utilize film to effectuate change and i think that's when it really kind of struck me during that time that i wanted to be involved in projects and creating projects that actually potentially could make a difference and build awareness and i think that's kind of when my brain started to shift into the documentary space i might not have officially been producing docs at that point but I was very supportive of documentary. And so when I started working for a distribution company, not too long after the festival had shut down, one of my main goals was to really help the CEO of the company get a lot of the cable operators to start taking documentary content. And uh, the way that they kind of their mindset was, was they didn't want to do one-offs. But we the conversation we were having with the cable operators was, well, what if we gave you 10 hours of documentary content a month rather than just one? And they were like, okay, well, if you're going to do 10 hours of documentary content a month, and then you're going to do 10 hours of independent film a month. And so we became a volume business very quickly. And this company that I'm referring to is Gravitas Ventures. And that was supposed to be genuinely, I was supposed to be on a three month contract with them. And three three months turned into five years. (laughs) (laughs) Partially because of just the state of the industry. And also just, I was really immersed in and kind of in the right place at the right time and wound up kind of getting at that first initial stage of what video on demand could be and really kind of helping to set like parameters across the industry, like price points and like, you know, how are we going to sell to and 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 really have people understand what this actually is. And, you know, because this was very much just transactional at the time, we were actually one of the first places to actually do a day and date theatrical. This is 10 plus years ago. So I stayed in it because it felt like I was making a difference and building awareness within a larger studio system for independent film. Because I'm a sucker for independent film no matter what. And it was a way to get those films out into the marketplace. And so I felt like I was doing my part by doing that. But again, it was this constant, like, I am missing being a part of creating one of them versus just acquiring them or creating the marketing mm-hmm. or, or things like that behind them. So I did resign from my position at Gravitas. can't remember if it's 2012 or 2013 at this point, because it's a while ago. So that I could, my, myself and Diane, we had started our company and we were working on projects like it was almost like my side hustle. Diane was a full-time line producer and working in the documentary space primarily. And we were also making narrative films through our company when we could, like we made a film called Detour by Will Dickerson. That was like, I would show up to set before my day started at the office and then I would go to the office all day and then I would sh- close out my day at, at the set. <laughs> Wow. So, yeah, I was just like, I was trying everything I possibly could to eventually segue out of being an executive again, just but understanding the state of the marketplace. But I did resign from Gravitas so that we could go off and make a film called Alaska is a Drag, which we made. (laughs) That's like seven plus years ago now, I think. It's like, I can't, again, time is just like that. And that's a narrative film as well by Shaz Bennett. That was a wild ride in and of itself, just because we got completely hoodwinked by some investors. And the fact that film is actually and out in the world is like a whole other story. But that was also around the same time where I really started paying attention to articles, things on NPR, like just just really kind of honing in on. And I actually heard Taylor Wilson, who's a young scientist who actually invented nuclear fusion in his parents' garage when he was a teenager and competed in a very well-known science fair. 
And I heard his interview on NPR one day while I was driving to the office. And I was like, oh, my God, what is this science? And I kind of looked up the, the science fair that was being run by the same organization that runs the script spelling bee. And I called Diane that day from the and I was like, you know, I just heard I'm like, you got to listen to this. I'm like, I think there's a film there. And we wound up presenting and pitching to the organization, like, would you be interested in us creating? And so we wound up ultimately, that is what Inventing Tomorrow is, which is actually the poster right behind me. Oh, yeah. Uh, that premi- that premiered at Sundance in 2018. So that that film, and, and I think that kind of, I think that was around 2014-ish, where I heard the, the piece on NPR. And then by 2015, we were really starting to dive in. And by 2016, we had gotten into the Catalyst program. And that really kickstarted because the filming of the fair was in LA in 2017. And then we premiered at Sundance in 2018. So it actually for a documentary kind of happened very quickly. But that was one of the first ones where I really was like, okay, this is this is I know this is where I need to be right now. And it's just kind of steamrolled from there. And and just so you know, too, that's exactly when I was kind of, uh, I was at Goldwyn for a, a short period of time, but then I wound up leaving there to focus on inventing tomorrow. Yeah. And I, I wanted to stick with the, you were an executive vice president, Samuel Goldwyn, which yeah. is, you know, huge company. You were, yeah. you know, uh, you were very much an important member of that team. You know, you had talked so much about, and I feel like your heart is in the same place as ours, where we're just suckers for independent film and, you know, getting these kind of smaller stories or maybe underrepresented people like you know th- those voices out into the world were, were you able to kind of sneak into Samuel Goldwyn as an executive and be like all right everyone come in the side door like you know like <laughs> what was your what was your role there and and how were how were you able to how were you able to complete or get these stories out into the world when you were working there so I had worked with Peter Goldwyn when I was still at Gravitas Ventures. There was a film, it was kind of near the tail end of my career at Gravitas. And at that point, I was vice president of acquisitions and marketing. And I oversaw all of our, let's call them A-list titles, where we would, you know, we had probably upwards of two to four films releasing a month that were in a day and date theatrical model. And there was a film that I really was interested in acquiring, but I also knew that we didn't have the quote unquote gravitas and or name to <laughs> get the the filmmakers on board because we weren't someone like a Samuel Goldwyn films. And so, and Peter and I had been kind of on the circuit seeing films together for a while. You know, you wind up seeing all the same people and acquisitions in screenings. And I had asked him, I was like, are you interested in this film as well? And he was like, yeah, we love this film. And I was like, well, I, I have some ideas about how we could take this out into the world, but I think maybe we should partner. And he was like, we've not done a day and date theatrical release before. And I was like, well, we're not even going to do a day and date if we team up. I want to do a pre-theatrical release where we actually release it into the video on demand space first at a higher price point and then take it into theaters day and date and reduce the pricing and then we'll go to just the the vod component it's transactional and he was like all right i'm game like let's do it so we wound up you know between our ceo and and peter and we all agreed on some terms and we worked together and peter laughed at me because every time he would call he's like okay who within your department can help me with and i was like that's me and then he (laughs) and he's like okay like i'm gonna talk to you tell me who i'm so sorry tell me who from your team i need to talk to like there was a couple of times where he would call and ask questions like that and i was like peter you're you're just dealing with (laughs) 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 And, and he finally was like oh my god and i was like yeah no i'm like 
trust me, come here. I was like, trust me. I'm like, you know, it's not that we don't have a staff here. It's just when it comes to this type of release strategy, a lot of what you're asking for, like, just deal with me and then I'll make sure we get it executed on our side or I'll kind of like explain my quote unquote playbook. So by the end of that film, he was like, he genuinely was like, I have to steal you from this company. (laughs) (laughs) And, And I was just like, well, I'm actually resigning, but I don't want, I don't want an executive job. I'm going off to make, I really like my desire for producing has taken over my life and I have to go do it. Like, I just have to go do it. And he was like, okay, I support that decision. So, you know, and I left on the best of terms, you know, I still talk with Michael and and Nolan quite a bit, like, you know, and and so they, they supported my decision as well, went off, made the film, obviously all hell broke loose with financing and everything. So when Peter kept on calling me, like, how are you doing? What's going on? And I was like, oh, how sitting for a friend in Chicago right now? Because I got rid of my place thinking I was, you know, and, and he was like, well, wait, what, what are you doing? And I was like, well, we're trying to figure out the rest of the funding so we can get the film across the finish line. He's like, now's the time for you to come work here. <laughs> <laughs> and and I and we kind of hammered it out where he was like, look, he's like, you know, I need an I need an executive vice president. He's like, I have a new partner. We've taken over the company from the rest of my family. He's like, but, you know, I understand that, you know, the we are now living in a world of day and date theatrical releasing. He's like, it was amazing working with you on, you know, the film. He's like, is there any way that you would? And I finally was like, he kind of just wore me down, you know? And I was like, yeah. And I was like, but I had one stipulation. I was like, look, like I've been trying to focus on this aspect of just producing for a while now. And I go, I know that I have a really good understanding of distribution and acquisitions and marketing, all those things. And I'm like, but I'm like, can we at least have like some sense of like maybe in the next three years or whatever, you guys are going to start producing again. And and he was like, of course. And he's like, but I'm also because I know you have your company with Diane. He's like, we can carve out, you know, like if you need time and the ability to deal with any of your projects, like totally on board with that. And I was like, it's kind of the best of both worlds. So I started there and really kind of, I think, I think I had 153% increase in their releases or something along those lines. Wow. I did the math once. Wow. I think they used to do about, I want to say six releases a year or something like that. And we had gotten up to like 30 some odd releases wow. in the first year that I was there. And I kind of stole his assistant along the way. And I was like, I'm going to teach you everything I know. <laughs> and, and Peter was like, oh my God. And, and so Peter was really focused on acquisitions and he would kind of talk through all of and obviously the president of the company as well but we would talk through like what do you think and I was like here's why this one works really well and and I would kind of lay out like what I think the cable operators or the online platforms everyone would do and that's kind of why I had the position I had as executive vice president because I was really kind of bringing that company into the 21st century from a distribution standpoint not that they I mean like what they've done in the past is unbelievable but they were very much a theatrical focused business and so that was where my role kind of played out. And so I was there for almost two years. And I really enjoyed working with everyone I worked with. Some of the films that we really were able to to bring on were phenomenal. And some of them made a ton of sense for the type of releasing that we did. I actually got them to kind of lean into the thriller horror space a little bit, which they really weren't known for. But it was because I, you know, I was like, look, I kind of think that you need to think about like what's going to be successful potentially theatrically is also probably going to be just as successful in the cable VOD space as well as the transactional space online. And that's a really good example of some like one of the films I can think of right now that they really kind of got behind for that reason with Pet. And so, you know, after almost two years of being there and then with everything that was starting to happen with Inventing Tomorrow and getting Greenlit and getting 
getting into Catalyst and, and starting to be able to film, I was like, I'm missing out on what's happening with that film because I'm an executive vice president at a company that's not my own. And so ultimately made the decision which I think is the right one now, is that I decided, you know, it was time for me to leave and focus on my own company with my producing partner versus stay there. And so I left during the process of us really kind of ramping up Inventing Tomorrow. And I, you know, in my heart of hearts, I know it was the right decision because we wound up getting into Sundance and then like Di and I, and then I was like, okay, like if I'm going to take on a quote unquote executive role anywhere else at this point going forward, it's going to be within my own company. And so since 2007 or 2017, I have really kind of focused on growing our company, really getting projects off the ground that we love and working with filmmakers that we've wanted to work with for a while. We have lived in the documentary space primarily of late, but we definitely have narrative stuff that we're developing now too. And it's been an amazing ride, you know, and I I just love what I do. So... I don't know. It's a very long-winded answer. I apologize, but it's been it's been a great journey. <laughs> no, that's amazing. This, we're I, we're here for long-winded answers. I want I want to hear more about like what because you talked about being in the acquisitions at Gravitas, then moving to being the executive vice president at Samuel Goldwyn, but like the the difference. I want to know the difference between those two roles and like what does your day to day look like as an executive vice president versus working in equity? Is it the same with a different title? Like, are you doing? different things you know in that role like are you so or is it kind of like a bigger picture role like i just want to kind of hear more about like what your day-to-day is like as a executive vice president my day-to-day as an executive vice president was definitely a bigger scope in terms of like how to expand the company in terms of relationships with cable operators, online platforms, you know, places like that where they may or may not have had those relationships. So I was like doing some of that biz dev work. Then I was also very involved with the marketing and distribution strategy for all of our films. Like that was a big part of my role while I was there was really kind of Peter. Peter has exceptional taste when it comes to film. And he was he was started his acquisitions and kind of worked his way up, obviously, to the president of the company. And so we would have a lot of conversations about stuff that he would want to take on. And then there were projects where I would see something and we would talk about the how and why. So I definitely had some acquisitions under my belt as well while I was there. But my my biggest role was definitely coming up with the distribution strategy, the marketing campaigns, who were going to be the right vendors, how and who were we going to deal with in terms of theatrical bookings, like all the things. And then really kind of coaching up everyone within our staff about those processes from filling out metadata sheets to, you know, like, here's why we want to work with, or maybe negotiating with a poster vendor where I'm like, instead of giving you one film, we're going to give you three, you know, things like that. So it was definitely, my finger was in everything when I was at Goldwyn, including the hiring of people, you know, for different, different parts of the the company where we thought we needed somebody in-house to handle something versus outsourcing it. And then at Gravitas, to kind of go backwards, I started out as like a consultant with them who was really someone who had been immersed in the film festival world and had been immersed in independent film for many, many, many years. 
And, you know, Nolan and Michael, they're not from the film world. Nolan got his MBA at a USC and Michael, you know, prior to, to Gravitas was a JAG attorney within the military. So, you know, it was mm. like, I brought a very different like mindset into the, t- and weirdly enough, I was number three there too. So it was like, I was number wow. three in both places, wow. but it kind of was in a different way when I first started. But then I just, I, I really got to know them and understand like what their desires were for the company and really started to go okay like like i said like we we talked about like let's do 10 hours of this 10 hours let's talk volume because that's speak that a cable operator would understand but then also having me to be a way into speaking to filmmakers and going to film festivals i mean my rolodex of filmmakers because they're in a festival for five years is pretty deep (laughs) so yeah and then being able to go to film festivals and filmmakers who know me know it's like i can speak to an executive and i can speak to a filmmaker and then i can kind of translate for the two so that they all understand each other (laughs) because it's not the same language it's just not yeah yeah yeah. and so that was a big part of my role and so when when i wound up staying on with gravitas and kind of expanding my role by the time i left i had started their theatrical division you know know so i was very involved in a lot of like the bigger business decisions but my title was just different nice but now to kind of speak to that as well like it's what is it about a project that comes to you that makes you say yes yeah (laughs) uh you know what some of it is gut actually i think a lot of it is gut reaction i have to give diane credit for this comment because she says it all the time and now i i feel like every time i'm I'm on an interview or on a on a podcast or some i she always says it's the people in the project and it kind of needs to be both in order for her to say yes and i could not agree more you you know we all know we're all filmmakers it's like you're gonna spend upwards of five years with these people in some capacity, especially in the documentary space. So you better like them. (laughs) You better feel like (laughs) you better feel like you can go in the trenches with them. And you also want to work on, you know, projects that mean something to you, you know, and and so I think a lot of times, you know, and I'm also 30 years into this, I'm, I'm not a spring chicken anymore. And so I have the ability to be like, you know what, I have worked on something similar. Do I want to work on this that feels kind of in line with something I've already done? Or should I pick a different project where I have the same thoughts about the project itself, but it's something new and maybe even a little scary for me? I'd probably pick that one over the one where it kind of falls in line with what I've done before. But a lot of it for me is just really, really an appreciation for the filmmaker and their vision. Because I'm the type of producer, I'm like this, it's like sounds dorky, but like I'm the wind beneath your wings. I'm the one who's like, what do you need? What do you want? How are we going to make it happen? And I will do everything I can, you know, within the financial constraints that we have for a budget. And so that's probably why at this point in my life, I would say I'm a pretty good producer is because I'm there to help facilitate your vision. I do have opinions. I do get involved in the creative. There's no doubt about it. But I'm just as creative when it comes to the financial gymnastics of trying to put something together as I am with like sitting in and giving notes on a cut. And the other benefit that I have of late is 10 years of experience in distribution where I kind of can make some decisions like a reverse engineer. Like, you know, you want to reverse engineer a win as much as you possibly can. And so what I'll do is, is I will have somebody pitch a project to me and then I'll I'll kind of take my filmmaker producer brain out of the mix 
and I'll put my distribution buyer hat on that I had for many years and I'll go, okay, who do I know who's out there buying and, you know, releasing who's right for this? Who, who's your audience? What, what kind of audience, what's the audience going to pay, which is going to dictate what the buyer is going to pay. Like, and so I definitely come at it from a business POV. Cause as I like to tell everyone, like I work in show business, but I love the biz probably more than I love the show. <laughs> And that's like a really, that's a really, you know, interesting place to come from because most people are like, wait, what? Like, and I was like, I didn't, I didn't start in this business because I thought I wanted to work in the film industry. I went to school to be an accountant. (laughs) I, and to be honest with you, not even an accountant, an actuary. And I don't know if you know what an actuary, I don't know if you know what an actuary is. An actuary basically is an analytical person who does a deep dive into and determines like literally when you're going to die. So for insurance companies. And when I really had an understanding of what that was i was like i don't want to do this like this is this is like but that's how my brain my brain is very analytical and likes and works and lives really well in the numbers space and also in a visual space and so that transition was actually really kind of easy for me to happen and look the only reason i wound i give mike Leahy all the credit in the world for finding me this is the producer who gave me my start and it's literally because i was an accountant for a mechanic Glendale. Oh, wow. And that's where he found like that's where he found me. Yeah. He Mike Mike Leahy had a red Audi. I'll never forget it. He had a red <laughs> Audi. And after like the third time him coming in for various work that was needed to be done on the car. I'll never forget it. Mechanic's name was Andy. And he was back pulling the car up. And Mike was like, okay, how much do I owe you? And I was like, can I tell you something? And he's like, yeah, sure. And he was like, you know, I've run these numbers for you. And I know this is what you owe us. And here's what you've spent here to date. And I go, I don't think you're, I'm like, I think you're in the red as much as your car at this point. <laughs> <laughs> so if I was you, I would seriously think about maybe getting a new car versus coming back here again. Not that, not that, you know, I'm like sure Andy would be really upset with me for you t- for telling you this, but like, I really do think that like you might want to think, and he was like, you need to come work for me. <laughs> and, awesome. and I was like, well, what do you do? <laughs> and that's kind of how it started. He's wow. like, come on, come meet me on Monday. Come meet my two producing partners. And I was like, okay. And I just remember, I was like literally about to transfer to Santa Barbara. Like, wow. Crazy. Yeah. And my my boyfriend at the time was like, he was an art department person. Like he worked in art department. And I was like, I don't want to work 18 hours a day. Like you, this, this, this doesn't sound like appealing. And he's like, <laughs> go meet with them. You know, he's like, they're asking you to work in the office. They're asking you to be like kind of a catch all with accounting and production and whatever. And he's like, I think you're going to like it. Cause I knew like all his friends and I could sit there and talk about movies all day long. Right. And I went in and I met with the other two partners and, and took the job on the spot. Like I was like, this sounds awesome. Wow. And so, yeah, I mean, that's how it started. So I, I have one more question I have to ask before we get to the final questions. And it's sort of a dovetail question from the last question. So you talked about like, you know, what you look for in a project and you talked about like, you know, the, the people are being are as equally as important in the, as a project. But like, what advice do you have for because like every filmmaker in the world wants to find a producer? Like, that's like the first question that like I get from filmmakers is like, how do you find your producer? How did you find your producer? I want to find a producer. So what what would you say to those filmmakers? Like if, if they don't have a producer connection or they don't have a friend and they're trying to find someone to partner with on a project of theirs, what what do what do they do? Like how do they look? Like I mean, does cold emailing even work? Like do they just need to go to film festivals and meet people? Like what's what is the answer? All of the above. 
It is hmm. it is cold calling e- cold calls. By the way, I still answer my phone. Just saying. Like, I, tell this, <laughs> I tell people this all the time. I'm like, I am 51 years old. I actually answer my phone. My number is actually on IMDb. If I don't answer it and you leave me a message, I will call you back. You know, it's just like I'm just old school <laughs> nice. in that respect. But uh, and, and the reason why is because my inbox is an abyss, like genuinely. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm all like, um, people are like, I emailed you two months ago. And I was like, you did? Like, I, you know what I mean? Like, it's just like, but, you know, if you call me, I, I will either answer my phone or call you back. If you email me, I promise I will get back at some point, but it might take two or three tries to get me because, but I'll, I'll give you a really good example. The 2018 was the spring of 2018. We were taking Inventing Tomorrow kind of on the festival circuit. We were in uh, Toronto for hot docs. And myself and Diane got an email from Leah Gallant and Maya Cueva, and they are the co-directors of On the Divide. And they reached out to us and they're like, you know, you know, we, we, we would love an opportunity to sit down with you for half an hour. We are looking for producers for our documentary. They gave the log, it was a short email, log line, love the possibility of meeting you. You know, we had reached out and I think they had mentioned that they had reached out to Mono Pictures and Julie Goldman as someone else that they were interested in talking with so that, you know, but they were like, if you have an opportunity. And I looked at Di and I was just like, good on them for actually reaching out to us while we're here because they saw the program. And I was like, we should give them like, let's meet with them and see what happens. And I was like, yeah, we should totally. It was funny because we both kind of came at it at the same time and we're like, we should meet with them. And we sat down and by the end of it, we were like, look, like this is going to be a really hard film to raise money for because it's about three different points of view of people living and or working within a community in McAllen, Texas. And the I would say the fourth character is the last abortion clinic in the area. And this is pre-reversal of Roe v. Wade. And I was like, so it's going to be really hard to fund and it's going to be an uphill battle, but like we want to be your producers. And that's how they got us. Like, it was just so I just say that. And then, you know, I get approached at film festivals all the time. That is a great, like, interaction. And I tell people, I'm like, half the time, I'm just like, give me your phone. I'll put my information in here and just make sure this is how when you email me, this is how we met. So and I think that, you know, if there if I would do the homework, and I always tell filmmakers, I'm like, if there's films that are comparable in your mind to the film that you're looking to make, do your homework, go on IMDb, look and see who the producers are who made that. And is there contact information there? And if it is, reach out to them. And, you know, and then if there's other people where if you're, you know, it's just, I think that you kind of have to, especially when you're starting out and you're trying to find your tribe, you just have to have no fear about it. You just have to be able to reach out and see like who's available. Cause like, look, there's a lot of time, there's a lot that I can't say yes to there's a lot and yet i am the type of person as is my producing partner we're like you know what we don't have the capacity to take on your film but we we think you're great we think your idea is really great we think that you might want to talk to this person that we know or you know you know have you talked to this director in terms of like some of the aesthetics of what you're trying to do because maybe they have some ideas of producers that they talk to about their film before they landed on so it's like and it's a pretty you know the community is like people are happy to help each other you just have to be like reach out you know so i think i think there's a lot of ways to do that amazing that's yeah such a great answer thank you so much for that all right are you ready to go for the final six let's do it all right what is the first film you made and how do you feel about it and this could be like you know a, a, a student film you made in high school or you know like something you made in the backyard when you were a friend or you know when you were kids 
something like that. Or, or it could be, you know, a larger project as well. The first film that I worked on was a film called God's Army, which ultimately was changed to The Prophecy, which now has multiple, I want to say at least two or three iterations of it. That was the first film that I worked on. And what I loved about that film and what was so intriguing about it was not only was it the first film I worked on and made so many of my closest friends within that film itself, is for a quote unquote thriller slash horror film that Dimension released, it was really smart. The way it was written and, and the reason why is because it was a director, writer who was very well respected in the writing community. But I believe this was his directorial debut. Greg Wyden was was the director of the film. And he wrote Backdraft and he had been a part of Blade Runner. And so he's just a really eloquent writer. And the way he kind of focused on the religious components of the film, but in a way that wasn't disrespectful and simultaneously was really intriguing. I mean, like the cast is unbelievable in this movie. It's like Christopher Walken's in it. Eric Stoltz is in it. Viggo Mortensen's in it. Like, it's just like one of these. So it's like, I think back on that and I'm just like, wow. I re- and I worked on that movie in 1993. So that was the first time. <laughs> I just saw that recently. Fun movie. Uh, yeah. Christopher Walken is an angel. Yep. Amazing. What's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received? Joel Swasson, one of the three partners at uh, Neo Motion Pictures. One of the best things he ever said to me, and I quote this all the time. He's like, treat me the way the same and treat me and the PA the exact same way. Because at some point in your career, that PA is going to be your boss and people are going to respect you on every level if you treat us all the same. And I kind of stick by that. I, I, you know, I, I, to be honest with you, like I even have a hard time when I'm like, they're like, oh, you're assistant or I'm like, no, it's my coworker. Like I just, it's, I'm very cognizant of trying to make sure everything's on a, on a level playing field as much as possible because I just think that's fair because, and Michael Murphy, I, if I could have like an asterisk to like second best one who was one of the, the the president, he was the president of Gravitas until recently. He's like, Mel, tide rises all boats. And it's very true. It's very, very true. And I, I, I really now, believe the, that. The opposite of that. <laughs> no, go ahead. Oh, the, the opposite of that. Uh, what is the worst filmmaking advice that you've ever gotten? Worst filmmaking advice I've ever gotten. Hmm. I, I, I Maybe don't you know. haven't gotten any. I don't know if I've ever gotten any like quote unquote worst filmmaking. I don't think I have. Because mm. right. I'm, pr- I'm pretty good at like, rem- like I can off the cuff. I can't think of anything that's really bad. I really can't. All right. This is the first. Yeah. <laughs> do, do you have uh, a goal as a producer or a filmmaker? Yeah, I, I think my, my next goal in my career is I would really like to expand Fishbowl into a larger company. You know, we're extremely fortunate of the accolades that we've received of late. I would really like to expand the company in terms of being able to create more content, which means bringing on more staff and being able to say a yes a little bit more because, you know, I can only do so much. Diane can only do so much. We we are we are a small but mighty team. You know, we we work with a lot of the same people, but I would like to be able to expand the company into more of a, a mini studio of sorts and or a larger production entity. I mean, we're really, we're again, we're extremely fortunate. Like we're, it sounds weird, but like we're an approved vendor with multiple studios and streamers at this point. And, you know, I'd like to be able to put that more into practice with having a larger staff. So yeah, I'm definitely starting to take meetings about expanding the company in that way. If you could go back in time and give yourself a piece of advice. I think there were probably a few times where I may may have 
stuck around on a job, not necessarily, uh, and I'm not referring to any of my like more executive work or with the festival, but you know, there's been a few times where it was just like, you kind of stuck, stuck around because you needed the paycheck. And I think if I could go back in time, I would tell myself, you know what, you'll figure it out. You'll, you'll, you'll don't, don't just stay on something because of the money, like you will figure it out. And I, it's, that's a really scary thing to think about, especially when you're younger and like, how am I going to pay my bills? But I think there's been a few times in my career where I was like, Oh God, I really like you, you need to love what you do. And I think that's the heart, you know, it's like, for the most part, I have always enjoyed what I do, but there's been a few instances where I'm like, Oh my God, do I really want to be, I don't want to be doing, but I needed the money. And I probably now, if, if I could go back in time, I would tell myself like, it's not worth it. Go find something else. And last question, is making movies hard? Of course. <laughs> of course. Yeah. I mean, like, I, you know, it's like, I love a good puzzle. I love a good challenge. And I think that's so much of what filmmaking is, is like, you know, really trying to determine like, okay, how are we going to make, how are we going to make what you've written on a piece of paper and or filmed and or put together a pitch deck for, how are we going to take that to a product? that is going to be released into the world and make it as best as possible. So it's like, you know, it's hard, you know, it's like, how do you find the money? How do you find the right people? Like all all of these things, like it takes an exorbitant amount of energy because you're definitely on a marathon no matter what. And it also, you know, it takes a lot of gumption and it takes a lot of hustle and you just, you kind of just can't ever stop. But it's kind of the reason I get up in the morning. You know, it's just like, I just want to get out there and just be like, okay, like, how are we going to, how are we going to make this one happen today? So it's hard. It's hard, but it's totally worth it. You know, and it's like, because I look at certain things like Inventing Tomorrow is a great example, or, you know, you know, there's so many films, but the reason why I say Inventing Tomorrow is like, cause like that for me, it was like, I heard an interview on the radio and a few years later we have a film that's inspired by that interview and actually the young man who i heard on the radio came as one of our panelists with us to sundance and i actually got to know him and i was like when i told him that he was like wait what and i was like oh yeah taylor i'm all like you are the reason that this film got made and he was like that's amazing and i was like that's you know that's the power of storytelling and that's the power of like just never giving up and believing in something yeah incredible i know that we only have like four minutes left until you you had to you have to leave but i can't believe we didn't talk about delvani at all <laughs> in this whole conversation. Yeah. but uh if you have time to just really quick like so you won an oscar for that film like what was that like did that change anything for you or is, is it just like oh my like is it is it hard to process that because that's like the top top is biggest thing you could possibly do in the industry like what was that whole thing like? It's very surreal. I, you know, I, I'm still kind of pinching myself going, what just happened? <laughs> I mean, we've been saying that, you know, since we started producing the film, because, you know, no one knew. Absolutely no one. We couldn't tell our families. We couldn't tell anyone what we were doing for security reasons and for, you know, just like safety. And just it just was like people would be like, what are you working on? Secret project. Like, that's like literally what we were. Wow. How we were yeah. And. So, you know, it's been a phenomenal journey and it's like, it's, it's, it's bittersweet because Alexei is now been in prison for upwards of 
I think we just hit a little over three years. Wow. And, you know, they are the treatment that he is receiving within the penal colony where he's at is obscene. Like they've taken away so many privileges that other inmates have. You know, he's constantly being put on trial for things that, you know, it's like, I think he's looking at upwards of 30 years at this point in terms of his sentence for doing the right thing. You know, it, it's just he and, and yet his spirit and his perseverance from prison is exceptional. You know, he's in, he's probably one of the largest speakers about the war in Ukraine and how horrible it is. And, you know, it's just like, he will not stop. And it's, he's very inspirational. And that was why I'm, I'm so, so pleased with how and what the film has received in those accolades, because it shines a light on him way more than I would like any light to be shown on me. Like I'm very much a behind the scenes person. And I'm look, I am one of four producers on that film and that film is an exceptional piece of work by an extraordinary talented director, an exceptional editorial team. You know, like I said, four producers, myself, Diane Becker, Shane Boris, Odessa Ray, exceptional team of people at CNN Films who took on the film when a lot of people probably would have been like, absolutely not. We can't touch this with a 10 foot pole. And then the amount of people and the army that it took to like take it out into the world and continue to take it on the award circuit for the amount of time that it did to get to that point is extraordinary. And I am forever grateful for being a part of that very, very, very special team. I really am. And it's like, you know, but like I said, it's bittersweet because it's hard to celebrate something that is so exceptional, exceptional within our field and simultaneously know that the person that it's about is in prison. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's so, and I, as you can see, I can get a little upset about it because it's just hard. It's, it's hard to accept, but yeah. I look at his family, like Yulia and his daughter, Dasha and his son, and just like how much perseverance they have, as well as his team, like Maria, who helps run his foundation. And she's like his chief investigator. And I, she's just been elevated within the organization. Like they will not stop. And it's, it's extremely impressive. And then to have someone like Christo Groza from Bellingcat be a part of it too. Like he's an extraordinary human being who has like sacrificed a lot to help solve, improve the poisoning, you know? Wow. So it's just like that, that's like, the, that film is the perfect example of why I do what I do because it's like to be able to shine a light on something that a lot of people knew about, but now like everybody knows about because so many people around the world are watching the Oscars or paying attention to those kinds of things. And he's constantly in the news cycle, you know, and that's why CNN was such a great partner for the film, because it's a way to constantly keep him in the global consciousness. Amazing. Mel, thank you so much for joining us. This is such a great talk. You've had such an amazing career and it, it 100% comes through that you really love what you do. Like you were you just absolutely glow whenever you talk about these projects and the things um, that you do. So Thank you. So thank you so much for, for coming on the show and joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm sorry if my answers were long-winded. Oh, perfect. <laughs> exactly what, what we're looking for. Do you love making movies as hard and you want to listen to more episodes? Jump over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash MMIH and you can listen to the entire back catalog of episodes for just $1.99 a month. That's an additional 300 episodes that aren't on iTunes that you can listen to whenever you please. But without any more blibber blabber. Back to the show. 
All right, Eric, I wasn't there. What do you remember about your chat and Eric's chat with Mel Miller? Mel was incredible. That was the that's the amazing thing I remember is that she she had such an amazing story. She had been doing this work for a really long time and like just the way that she got into the industry it was like really fascinating. Basically like she was working as an accountant or something at, at like a body shop and like she like went up to like one of her customers and was like, "Hey, like you've been coming in with this car like three or four times. Like if you keep on coming in to do work on here, it's not going to, you're going to be paying more for, for the, than your car is worth. Like you should just think about not coming. Like I know my boss doesn't want me to say this, but you shouldn't come back again with this car for any problems. Just get a new car. And the guy was like, you got to work for me. You're amazing. <laughs> and so then like he happened to work in production and then that's how she got into production. And then she did music stuff and music licensing and, and things for a long time. And then, yeah, just her whole trajectory to like to Gravitas and then to Samuel Goldwyn and then to her own thing is just really amazing. And, you know, the, I think the thing that I, I take away from everything that she said is that like you really have to do it for yourself, you know, and like you can't like you, you can't just work for other people and like say, oh, I'll eventually one day follow my dreams. I'll eventually one day make the movies I want to make. Like you, at some point you just have to draw a line in the sand and be like, I need to go make the things that I care about and 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 take that risk on myself, you know? And so that's what she did to start her company. And that risk ended up paying off. But she left being the v- executive VP, vice president at Samuel Goldwyn to start her own company. Like she like went from, you know, being in a highly paid big time position to like just, you know, starting off brand new. And so it's like, I feel like that kind of courage and, and boldness is like really what I want to remember is like what makes filmmakers great filmmakers you know but that's that's my big big takeaway ambition conviction like a direction right that's yeah it's amazing and she's so humble and so like just down to earth and like very respectful and like you know kind of like works so hard for her for projects and really loves the collaborative nature collaborative nature of filmmaking and it just was like a really wonderful conversation but you know what else is really wonderful is the game so for those of you who don't know, if this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, our producer Eric Toms has invented something called The Game. And it's a game where he comes up with a scenario, a, a quandary, like a like a challenge, a challenging situation on a movie set. And then Liz or I ask each other the question, and then the other one answers it blind on the show. So this week is Liz's turn to answer this question blind. This is a, she's never heard this question before. I actually haven't even read it before. This is the first time. So without further ado, here is the question of the week for the game. You are only a few days away from shooting your next feature film. Oh, so exciting. The budget is very small, but you have a tight knit crew. Everything is exactly how you want it. Wow. Okay. Dream time. And the actors in place are the perfect people for the script you have painstakingly written. Wow. However, your producer comes to you and says that an up-and-coming actor has caught wind of your production and would like to play the lead. The producer, who has put a sizable amount of money into the project, takes this as a real stroke of luck and is very insistent that you hire the new actor and believes not moving forward with them would be silly because they are confident that they would fetch more money for the project. The actors you have cast at the moment are blue-collar and have put in their free time into the project because they believe in you and the script. Replacing any one of them could cause real animosity amongst the actors. Do you A, hire the actor and hope they gel with the production, and who knows, they may add money to your production or even help when it comes to selling the film. Put your foot down and refuse to hire the actor confident in your cast and crew as it is. 
though you get the feeling this may hurt the relationship between you and the producer and even worry that they'll leave the project taking their money with them. C. See if you can come to some sort of compromise with the producer and ask if perhaps the actor can take a smaller part or plan on working together on a future project. D. Other. What do you do, director? What do you do? All right. So what I immediately thought is you have to ask to audition the up-and-coming actor Mm. and see how both the producer and the actor react to that. Because I think that's a litmus test. It's like, A, you have no idea if this actor is right for any of the roles, because under the assumption of how this question is written, I don't have that data. I don't know if they're right, right? Like, I think that these other actors who have already cast are perfect, but Eric didn't say what I think of this up-and-coming actor. So, and I think if you ask them to audition and they are humble enough to to be willing to do that, then I could get it on tape. I can have something, I have like ammo to show my producer if they're wrong and other people if they're wrong, like if this actor is wrong for the role. And then I'm giving myself a chance to see if they're right and to change my mind, right? Maybe there is a world where they could be good and take direction and fit in. I'm not as worried about upsetting the other actors that I may have to fire or replace, which is evil. But my perspective is that like the commercial success of this film is incredibly important. And there have been many scenarios where people have been hired and fired leading up to the day of production. So I think I would forgive myself if I had to. My my choice is other. It's audition the up and coming actor. If they're not willing to audition, then I will probably dig my heels in and say, if this actor's not willing to audition, I can't make such a massive decision just a few days before we start. And I already have the team I want. There must be another way. What would you do? Well, I was gonna ask like lots of questions, like who is this actor? Like, are they like up and coming? What does that mean? How, yeah. Yeah. What does that mean? Does it mean like, are they Halle Bailey who just was just in Little Mermaid? Are they like someone even bigger than that? Like, you know, Timothy Chalamet? Like, like who are right. we talking about here? Right. You know, like, because to me, if it's a Halle Bailey or somebody who like has done one movie and like, you know, is kind of, it's like, that's like, okay, well, maybe they're going to be something, but like maybe they just yet. did that one movie and we don't know if it's going to actually be beneficial to my movie. If it's Timothy Chalamet, fuck yeah, of course it's going to be great. And like, that's kind of like a no brainer and you have to go with that person. But like, yeah. I think, you know, but, but Timothy Chalamet is not really an up and comer. He's more like an A-lister. So it's like, I feel like, you know, I wouldn't, I don't know. I think it depends on who they are, but I'm like, I just, I just t- type, typed in up and coming actors, 2023. And like a, a lot of these names, like I only know like a couple of them, like Amber mid thunder is one I know, but just because I, I really liked, you know, that movie that she was in prey, but oh, like, yeah, yeah. you know, these other ones, like well, it says Anya Park- Taylor joy is up and coming. It's like, no, 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 no. no. If Florence it was Anya Taylor Joy, no, no, no. yes, Forlands Pew, yes, these people, yes, but that's not who I don't think that's who Eric's talking about here. No, I have to steal your answer. Your answer was so good. I didn't think yes. about that, but that's like the best thing to do. Like you would totally have them audition and then like see if they're a good fit or not. But like, you know, I think the the the, the thing is about indie filmmaking. We've t- said this so many times. It's like it it's so star dependent. It's so. Yes like dependent on who's hot and who's not, you know? And I mean, not to say that the knots are bad, but I'm just saying like, if you have a hot actor in a movie, like the chances that it's going to get attention seen and like 
get into these festivals and whatever, whatever. Like, you know, Holly Bailey's next movie is probably going to get a lot of attention because everyone said she did such a great job in Little Mermaid. So if it was Halle Bailey, for instance, I probably would have to be like, unless she sucks. Right, she's yes, got to audition. This. She's so got to audition. audition. Yeah. But she's got to audition first. Yeah, if it was an A-lister, like who you know is going to be good no matter what, like, you know, at Florence Pugh or Timothy Chalamet or whatever, then like, yeah, then you just hire them. But like for someone who's like done one movie and is like on that list and like we're not sure quite yet, like... Yeah, you nailed it, Liz. Great job. Yes, that was everyone. Me. Hi- hire Liz as their, as your producer because she <laughs> is amazing. If she would do that for you in in two months, <laughs> two not months, now, exactly. not now. <laughs> yeah, now that was fun. Good stuff. Good job, Eric. So, what do you guys think? Is Liz wrong, and and by proxy me wrong, or is there another way that you would approach this? Who, who is an up and coming actor to you? I don't even know. I want to know what people think. Like. Like, is it names that were up and coming five years ago, like Timothy Chalamet? Are those the upcoming actors that when you say that in their mind? Or is it really like the people who are actually up and coming, like ones who you probably don't know their name yet, like Halle Bailey and what was the other one you said? Oh, Anya oh, Aber- Taylor. Oh. No, Anya Taylor-Joy. No, <laughs> no. She's, she's definitely, she's Princess Peach for crying out loud. She's the best. Yeah, she's awesome. Oh, Bella Ramsey is on this on, on, on a list. I think Bella Ramsey yeah. could be up and coming. That's a yeah, decent, I think that qualifies. Yeah. yeah, no, for sure. But yeah, let us know what you think. Send us an email to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. Or if you really like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes. Also, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at MMIH Podcast and YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. Also, make sure to check out the International Screenwriters Association, the ISA. They are an organization designed to connect writers with filmmakers through a number of programs they offer, including publishing your logline to a network of industry professionals, consultation courses, contests, and of course, their top 25 writers list features some of their, some, featuring some of their best writers. So head over to www.networkisa.org to sign up for free today. Thanks to Mel Miller for coming on the show. Thanks to our editor, Jeff Reimut, for doing the editing. Thanks to Robert Jones for handling all of our social media. And thanks to our producer, Eric Toms, for being simply awesome. Thanks to you all for listening, and we'll talk to you all next week. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.